Well, hello and welcome. It is our usual time. It is our usual day of the week, but it is not our usual week. We are actually here uh, usually every two weeks, and this is not generally the Thursday that we are here. But guess what? We are here, and we've got a really special uh, program in store for you today. Uh, of course, my name is Guy Stevens. I'm the founder and executive director of the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint. Uh, if you're not familiar with the Alliance, we were started a bit over four years ago, really with a mission to look at a lot of things that were happening to kids uh, very often the name of compliance, it was restraint, seclusion, suspension, expulsion, corporal punishment, uh, things being done to kids that were ultimately having really poor outcomes, leading kids down to school to prison pipeline, uh, leading to, uh, you know, a lot of trauma. And we began this organization to try to make uh, positive change, try to change practices, try to change laws and policies, try to do things that bring people together and hopefully uh, do good things that are going to make a positive difference in people's lives, whether you're a, a student, whether you're a teacher, whether you're a parent or a staff member, uh, ultimately the same things that are going to make improvements for our kids in schools and in other settings also have a tremendous positive impact on others. So as always uh, today, I'm, I'm very excited. I, I know I say that every week uh, and we have just, uh, I think, the most amazing guests that join us. Uh, and today is no exception. Uh, I've got a father and son here, Robert and Ryan Delana, joining us uh, for a really special discussion. Uh, we're actually going to be talking about a book uh, that they co-wrote and a book called, and you might have seen this recently in our um, social media feed, a book called Without Restraint, How Skiing Saved My Son's Life. Uh, so we're going to be talking about uh, their story and uh, their experiences uh, and things that had to do with restraint and seclusion and ultimately uh, what turned to be a really positive outcome for Ryan out of a very negative experience. So we're going to be really honored to get to hear and share their story today. I do want to let you know, as always, these sessions are recorded. So if you're not able to watch the whole thing live, you can come back and watch it later on YouTube, Facebook, uh, LinkedIn, and we also make it available as an audio podcast. Uh, as always, we'll be taking questions. You can put questions that you have in anytime. But even beyond the questions, what I'd like to know is who you are and where you're from. And I know we have a lot of people that join us uh, almost every show that we do. And I can't tell you how much I appreciate you being uh, kind of loyal uh, fans and followers of what we're doing here, uh, loyal members of the community. I really appreciate that. Um, but please tell us who you are and where you're from. Uh, as I'll uh, always share with our guests, you know, we get people from all over the world. And it's really a, a privilege and an honor to get you uh, spending some time with us here. So with all of that, uh, I see some people already beginning to introduce themselves. Let me begin by introducing to you our very special guest today. And I'm going to tell you, tell you a little bit about both of them. And uh, then we will uh, begin with an interview here. So uh, let me begin. And, and at some point here, my... My correct screen disappeared on me here, but let me begin with our introductions. So I'm going to begin by introducing you to Robert. Uh, Robert is uh, the father of Ryan, and Robert was raised in Revere, Massachusetts, and a graduate of the Governor's Academy, Trinity College, and Northeastern University of Law. Uh, after practicing law and happily, he founded a small recruiting company called Legal Staffing Solutions, and for over 20 years has advised law firms, lawyers, law students on uh, legal hiring. Uh, Rob lives in uh, Sudsbury, Maine, with his wife, Mary Beth, and his daughter, Abigail, uh, who currently attends Hamilton College. He spends his time skiing with his son, Ryan, uh, and the great friends that he has made during his journey from beginner to reluctant adventurer. Uh, Rob has skied all over the United States, internationally in Canada, Chile, and Argentina, 
uh, and even survived a backcountry expedition to Antarctica. Wow. Uh, and he is planning to return to Antarctica with Ryan in uh, late 2022. So uh, this this actually happened uh, before go. that, but you'll have to give us an update on that. No. And of course, yeah. um, we'll we'll meet Ryan here as well. Uh, Ryan is uh, currently a junior at North uh, Northern Vermont University studying outdoor education. Uh, he's widely known in the outdoor community through his social media presence as Extreme Ryan. Uh, he was pictured on the cover of Backcountry Ski uh, Maps in 2020 uh, and has conquered many of the world's signature ski runs, including Superior uh, Sea uh, Collier in Chile. Uh, Cooler, thank you. Uh, Little Cooler in Montana and Tuckerman's Ravine in New Hampshire. Uh, Ryan has climbed and skied additional peaks in Oregon, Washington, Utah, California, Nevada, Wyoming, and Antarctica. And I would bet you we have people from a number of those places, probably not Antarctica. Uh, and he is an enthusiastic rock climber, ice climber, and avid hiker, uh, summoning the Grand Tetons twice, and has recently completed the 100 highest peaks uh, in New England. Uh, Ryan's uh, earned advanced certifications from the American Mountain Guides Association and professional ski instructors of America. And, of course, spends uh, every available moment uh, in the White Mountains and plans on adventuring to, and you can pronounce this for me, uh, where is this in Peru uh, and Antarctica in 2022. Um, so, Ryan and Robert, uh, first of all, it is fantastic to have you both here today and really excited to have you joining us for this conversation um, you know, I do want to start by saying that, you know, um, you're here, of course, uh, in part to talk about, um, you know, your, your book that we've talked about, um, but what connects, you know, both of you to the, the work that we're doing at the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint, unfortunately, is, is some experiences with restraint and, uh, um, you know, in schools. And I want to just begin uh, by saying to you, Ryan, that, um, you know, I'm really sorry that what was done to you was done to you and that you had the experiences that you had. Um, you know, my my son also uh, was in a situation where he was being physically restrained and secluded. And we have a community here of people that um, really are working to try to make a positive difference so that these things that were done to you don't happen and aren't done to others. So um, I just want you to know that, one, I really appreciate you and, and having the courage um and the um, strength to to write a book like this with your father and to share your experiences. You know, often when we go through really bad experiences, we want to put that trauma behind us. But in what you're doing here, I just want you to know, and I think you probably do, you're going to be helping other people. You're going to be helping other people that have had experiences like you've had. So I'm sorry that what happened to you and what was done to you was done to you, but I'm, I'm so appreciative that you have the um the courage here to come and join us so ryan welcome and, and thank you for joining us today thanks for having me i mean that's um it's what the book's all about that's why we did it a lot of people don't really know that this is an issue that's going on when you bring it up um people are generally surprised that it's going on and it's affected a lot of people so we're hoping to raise awareness uh to do the same thing you guys are doing which is to stop it and implement better systems for these kids in schools. Absolutely. I appreciate that. And, and Robert, you know, um, as a, as a father myself on this journey, uh, you know, the first time we connected and, and chatted, um, I really connected with you because I could connect with you, you know, as a dad, as a dad that, you know, really, um, you know, has always wanted the best for, for your children and, and, you know, uh, for Ryan and, um, 
you know, appreciate the, the work that you've been doing, um, not only to, um, you know, support, you know, support Ryan and, and his journey and, and knowing, uh, and, and being a big believer and, and, and whatnot, but, um, it's hard, it, it's hard. Um, you know, th- this is hard as well for a parent that's going through a lot of these things. And as I was reading the book and I'll tell you, I have not finished completely yet, uh, although I'm working on it. But as I was reading the book and kind of some of the early chapters, I could very much relate to your story as a parent uh, and the positions that we're in where we're told things that are difficult to hear. We're told things about our children that are difficult to hear. Um, We're given advice that seems like great advice that turns out to be really bad advice. So at any rate, um, I'm really happy, Robert, to, to have you here today. And, you know, the fact that you both collaborated on this book and are both here in the name of let's let's change some things just means the world to, I think so many people. Thank you so much. It's, it's, you know, I think for Ryan and I, we both had this, you know, we had to come to grips with exposing ourselves in some, you know, in part of this for me as a parent, I mean, not only did I send Ryan to a school that restrained him, sent him to three schools that restrained him, we restrained him at home. I mean, we were trained on how to restrain him at home and we're advised that this was going to fix him. And so, you know, we did that for, you know, a few years before it just became evident how ridiculous it was and, and that it was doing the opposite of what it was attended, intended, you know, but Ryan also had to expose himself. I mean, you know, for a lot of his journey, he was at therapeutic schools and no one in the, no one in the town knew where he was or they just knew he wasn't in the public system. And, you know, when he finally made it back to public high school his junior year, you know, he had a he had a chance to just sort of wash it all away and forget about it and mm-hmm. go to college and tell people his own story and, and never admit to what, what went on. And instead he took this on. And I think, you know, it shows incredible courage and strength and determination to try to help other people unselfishness too. It's, you know, it's, 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 it's a really special thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, you know, I think that by, by doing that, by sharing, by, you know, sharing your story, um, I'm a big believer in our stories. And I think that our stories have the ability to help other people that may be in a similar pattern, but in a different place than we are. And, you know, when we can do something, you know, I, I look back as a parent and look back and think, well, gee, I wish I'd known then what I know now, or I wish I could have done something differently. Uh, and, I, and I know you, you probably feel that way as well, but if we can help others uh, that are out there and, you know, Ryan, again, you're, you know, your courage in speaking up and sharing your story is so critical. Um, things don't change if no one knows. And, um, you know, this is one of those issues that the first time it happened to my son, I would never even imagined that kids were being kids, you know, especially kids that mm-hmm. like my son, my son as a neurodivergent had a disability would not have imagined that kids were being physically restrained and secluded mm-hmm. in schools it just seems unconscionable. But before we get into the interview, I just want to say, um, give a couple of hellos here real quick. Um, I often tell people that, you know, we really have an international audience and then I hope that people will prove me right in the audience. And, and right away we have somebody from Australia here. Uh, and depending on what part of Australia, uh, they're in, is definitely tomorrow in Australia uh, when we get people that are in kind of Melbourne, Sydney area. I think it's probably around 740 in the morning there. Um, so they are they are a day ahead of us. It is Friday uh, right now in Australia. Uh, we have somebody here from Washington State joining us. Uh, we've got somebody from Illinois, uh, Rochester, New York, uh, Vermont. Um, and uh, in fact, uh, another, another person from Vermont here, uh, who is actually going to be a guest with us in about a week or so, uh, an educator who has been working hard to eliminate restraint and seclusion. Uh, somebody here from the UK as well. 
uh, and Chantel, who's one of our volunteers in Canada. So look at this. You know, it, it's like your real life, Ryan. You're all over the world here. You're in Canada, <laughs> Washington, Vermont, you know, all the places you go. Um, Chantel, who's one of our volunteers, says, my heart goes out to you, Ryan, for all that you endured uh, and working to help all of our children. Uh, and oh, it looks like uh, Queensland, Queensland, Australia. It's 640 a.m. on Friday. So we, we have the yeah. answer. That's right. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, how's it feel to have people get it up on the other side of the world early to uh, uh, to hear your story? Um, you know, I, th I think it's fantastic. Yeah, that's pretty wild. Um, wow. I mean, that's uh, I wasn't expecting that. I was expecting a lot of local people. Uh, yeah. So it's cool that it's across the board. Um, but also nice to see some Vermont people in there. Curious where in Vermont people are right now. Uh, I'm in Linden right now, uh, Linden State currently. NVU soon to be VTSU. Who knows what after that? But that's awesome. Yeah. Well, well, you know what's interesting in Vermont. I, I mentioned one of the uh, the people that weighed in, uh, Brian uh, Dalamura. He's an educator in Vermont who has been working really hard to raise awareness about the use of prone restraint and, and seclusion in Vermont. And through his advocacy work, and, and he said he's in uh, Duxbury. Um, yep, that's right. Nice. He, he, he's a skier as well. All right, cool. And he bought um, a book. Thank you, Brian. Yep. Uh, and uh, he's actually been working really hard to get changes made in his own school district. He started out probably about a year ago advocating for change at the Board of Education. Uh, he sent me an email early today that there is a bill now in Vermont around uh, eliminating prone. And this is hard to believe. Prone restraint is allowed in Vermont schools with five and six year olds. Right. Wow. Um, it, it's still it's banned. And I think. Uh, Gosh, there's probably about 33 states that no longer allow prone restraint, but Vermont is actually one that allows it, and they also allow seclusion. But there is a bill that's being introduced to uh, to have an effect there. And who knows, Ryan? Maybe maybe there's even an opportunity if you have an interest in you going to the uh, the House and testifying on legislation around this. Um, having the voice of somebody like you that's been through this can can really make a difference. But anyway, I, I don't want to put any, any pressure on you. Uh, somebody else says that they are in uh, Ponal, Vermont. Uh, or headed there next week. Still home. Okay. Yeah. So, so definitely have a couple of locals. And if you haven't told us where you are, uh, who you are and where you're from, please do. Uh, and uh, we'll share with uh, Ryan and Robert kind of where you are, but let's dive into your story here. So we connected recently because you shared with me uh, the book that you have uh, co co-written together. Uh, the book is titled without restraint, how skiing saved my son's life. Um, and of course, when I first read that title, um, you know, I was had all sorts of questions, but of course you had contacted me and begun to share a little bit about your story. So if we can, let's go back a little bit in your story. And, um, you know, I know where we are today and, uh, fortunately, you know, uh, you know, Ryan, you're, you're in college, um, you know, finishing up your program and, and, uh, outdoor, um, you know, studies and, and, you know, have lots of plans for the future going places a scheme, but let, let's go back in time a little bit. Um, to kind of early on. And, and Robert, maybe you can tell us a little bit about, um, you know, when Ryan was younger and, you know, how you learned about, you know, what was happening. You mentioned earlier that, you know, at some point that you were given advice, and I know the book covers this, in terms mm -hmm. of what kind of school or placement to go through. But tell us a little bit about your er early journey and, sure. uh, you know, how this became um, you know, an issue that you became very concerned about. Yeah. So Ryan was a, was a tough kid. He was our first kid. He was born in 2001. And, you know, from the outset, he, 
honestly, we thought he was gifted. We were told he was gifted when he was about two because he talked so much and he, he was, you know, so he moved around. He, he, he just wanted to know what adults were doing. He asked questions and he just did things that normal two-year-olds don't do. Uh, but he was he was hard to manage. He 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 was volatile. If it, things didn't go his way, he was emotional, and and he was very stubborn and willful. And he also seemed to love to be defiant. Not just was defiant. He seemed to enjoy it. So at home, we were able to manage him. I, you know, I worked from home, and I had fun with it. Honestly, I, he was a great kid to be around. Uh, I'd look at these you know kids at the park who would, would just sit there like dolts. And here's Ryan climbing on the top of the swing set. And I, I always got a kick out of it. Unfortunately, when he went to school, it became difficult. We had, we had, we had, he was accepted into a sort of a fancy pants preschool and he was set to send him there. They had a summer program before the fall began. He went to the summer program for one day and they asked us if we could meet with the school um, the next day and, and have a pediatric neuropsychologist observe him. And, you know, you know, we sort of knew he was different. So we thought maybe that would tell us something. And so anyway, the neuropsychologist observed him the next day, watched him play for a couple of hours in, in the preschool room. And then she sat us down and said, you know, she didn't have a formal diagnosis, but she just took a, a circle and drew an oval and she drew a line down it. And she said, Ryan is extremely smart in the left half of his brain and he's extremely weak in the right half. And it made my wife and I are type A people. We were both attorneys. We we're pretty organized, regimented, you know, diligent people. We're not artsy. We're not creative. So, you know, we, we heard that and said, Okay, we just basically made a kid that's us on steroids, right? He's 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 the super version of us, and how now? What do we do? And so she tested him. She did some educational testing, and and I remember that when we, at that meeting in her office, her flipping through the diagnostic and statistical manual, trying to find a diagnosis, and she would mm -hmm. flip to a page, shake her head, flip to another page, nod her head, and then finally she said, you know, pervasive developmental disorder not otherwise specified. Now you guys, you know. You, when I'd say that to regular folk, they're like, what does that mean? It doesn't mean anything, <laughs> but you guys know that it doesn't mean anything. Right. So it, it, here we had this diagnosis that didn't tell us much, but now we could get services from the town. So we then, he, he left the private preschool, went to the town integrated preschool. That went okay for about a year, but he was, he was, he was the toughest kid there. He was, he was defiant there and uh, they had a hard time with him, but they didn't really, you know, it wasn't awful. Unfortunately, he wasn't old enough for kindergarten. I'll fast forward a little bit. They then wanted him to repeat that program. So he went back to the same exact program the next year. Now, Ryan is a very linear learner, very linear kid. He was four at this point, And we never told him that he was repeating the program. So in his mind, all of the, all of the progress that had been made the previous year, he showed up in fall and it all went back to you know ground zero again without any explanation. So mm -hmm. that second fall, he really unraveled. I know no, now know why, because we never told them what was going right, on. Right, right. And so at that point, they, they pushed us on a private placement therapeutic school. Mm -hmm. uh, the school that they suggested, I won't say the name, but uh, was nearby. It was in the suburbs. And in their materials, it was described as a holding environment. That was in the mm -hmm. second line of their website. You know, blah, 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 name, a holding environment. And it was presented to us that when kids get dysregulated, they would hug them and hold them and, you know, nurture them back to you know, to a place where they were able to, to rejoin the class. It seemed plausible. They trained us in it. We, they had, they, we had an older nanny that was working at Rye. We brought in a new nanny who was ABA trained. Mm -hmm. She had been trained in restraints. Uh, the school trained her and how they wanted her to do it. So now all of a sudden, anytime he got dysregulated, somebody was holding him. Now, you know, you, you guys know how, where this turns out. It, right, it's, right. It, it was more than just a hold.
I can keep going or you, you want? Yeah, yeah, yeah no. Wait, in fact, I, I was going to ask uh, uh, Ryan a question on that because th there was a quote, and I think I uh, dog-eared the page, but, you know, Ryan, you shared kind of your feeling on, you know, calling calling these holds hugs. Uh, and I don't remember the exact quote, but you said something like it, it's like, uh, you know, calling a teddy bear or, you know, a grizzly bear teddy bear or something like that. That, you Start know, what like they that. Yeah, I remember yeah. that quote. Yeah. Cause yeah. It, it just, it wasn't like that. They were really violent and, um, oftentimes unjustified. And when you tried to fight back, a lot of these teachers, you could tell they wanted to win that fight. You know, mm -hmm. they, they were using pretty excessive force if you were resisting it all. And they didn't generally stop until you were out of energy to do anything about and, it. And how old were you at that time? Five. So you're five years old when adults felt that it was necessary to hold you down if you were having a difficult time. Yeah. 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 Um, I, I mean, you know, again, you know, we often hear these things like a therapeutic hold or a hug and, and really we're talking about a physical restraint and, you mm -hmm. know, um, we, we've heard people from all over, you know, different backgrounds that say, well, you know, when you do restraint, say, you know, restraint safe, you know, when you do it right, it's safe. And, and I always disagree because the moment you go hands on with anybody, whether it's a kid or an adult, the moment you put hands on to try to control somebody, they're going to become dysregulated. If they were, weren't already dysregulated, they're going to be very dysregulated at that point. And, and people often go into a fight or flight stage, right? It's, yeah. it's, not, it's not even you thinking about it. You're not thinking, I want to be defiant. Your, your body is like, I've got to keep myself safe. And that was the thing is that these were happening when I was so young that I didn't have the words to describe what was happening to me. And it was really frustrating for me and, and scarring because I would always try and describe them as like, I don't know. I didn't want to. Like people would be like, you know, saying like, oh, why are you trying to hurt this person they're trying to help you I'm like i don't know i just kind of black out and you know i carried around so much guilt because what i didn't understand was it was triggering my fight or flight response of course i didn't remember what happened or why i did what i did i just like snapped into this mode where i felt like i needed to defend myself and then when i came down from everything and the restraint stopped and i was sitting thinking about it i couldn't explain what had happened Right, right. And, and, and of guys, course, it, you the know, funny part is, as the parent, I would say the exact same thing. What we were doing him at home, mm -hmm. you know, what started as he did something wrong, he wouldn't sit in time out or whatever it was. An hour and a half later, after we'd wrestled on the floor for some period of time, I didn't even remember what, what why, how did we start right, this? What, right, what, right. and what, how is this going to help him the next time? Is this going to help yeah, him make better right. decisions if he can't remember and I can't remember why we got in this wrestling match? Right. And that's one of the reasons these things are so not only dangerous, but ineffective is that, you know, for both the adult and the child, when the child becomes escalated and they go into a fight or flight mode, you know, I mean, Ryan, you talk about like, you know, kind of blacking out, but, you know, our, our prefrontal cortex, which is kind of our thinking decision making part of our brain. When we go into a fight or flight response mode, that part of the brain goes offline. You weren't thinking about anything at that point other than your body's survival instincts, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, and unfortunately, you know, as, as you might have been escalated and your arms are flailing, you're kicking, you're trying to get free, you're not doing that thoughtfully. That's your brain saying, protect me. And, mm -hmm. and what happens is the adults, and Robert, you can probably relate to this, the adults go into a fight or flight response mode as well. Same thing. And, and when you have, you know, a... Uh, a five-year-old and a full-grown adult or more than one full-grown adult, the danger of those situations is yep. so immense. And, you know, mm -hmm. um, you know, Ryan, um, 
when this last happened to my son, he was 13 years old. Um, you know, it first happened when he was six years old, last time when he was 13. At the same time, it happened in the fall of 2018 that my son was last physically restrained. Uh, there was a young man in California named Max Benson, and Max Benson was at a specialized school. He was put into a prone restraint, and he was killed in a prone restraint. I think about that so often and about what could have happened to my son. And I think about, you know, Ryan, what, what could have happened to you? Um, it is such a bad idea and strategy. Yet, mm-hmm. you know, when you have people coming to you and say, well, this is what we do. This is how we handle things that are the professionals. You know, we we tend to put defer to people that are in positions of authority or power. And as a result, we go, okay, well, maybe it doesn't rub right with me, but mm-hmm. it must be the thing to do. Guy, I think for context, one incredible story, and I'll have Ryan tell it, is when when we decided to put him in the private school, uh, the therapeutic school, the first one, they, one of the administrators from the therapeutic school came to visit Ryan at the public preschool and visit for a day. And and I didn't learn, we knew she came, but I didn't hear the story until he wrote the book. So Ryan, why don't you tell the first time that uh, you were introduced to school number one when you were at the public school? Yeah, when I was in public, I mean, and I'll elaborate on a broader issue of the system here is that they knew I was having this issue where I didn't want to sit still, I didn't want to learn, and they were making really big decisions about my life and you know moving me out of public school where they were going to put me, but they didn't treat it as though it was that serious with me. So essentially, whenever I didn't want to sit and do something, I would just stand up and a teacher aide would stand up with me and we would just walk through the halls and talk. So that was my impression, you know, at four and a half years old, I thought life was a peach. Mm-hmm. So this is, is yeah, I'm trying to like think of the, the words for the school that we <laughs> made up <laughs> uh, for school. Number one, the administrator came through um, and uh, she was basically explaining to me, Oh, this is your new school. This is where you're going to go. And everything went fine till about recess. And I was playing with these foam dice in the gym of our school. And she was like, okay, it's time to put them away now. And I'm like, I don't want to put the dice away. And she tried to pull out of my hand. And then I resisted getting the dice pulled out of my hand. And she restrained me on the floor of the school. Mm. And it was like, completely unexplained. It was so sudden. It was like the exact opposite of every other response to an issue I'd had at school at that point. And I was freaked out and I started screaming and then she covered my mouth so I wouldn't disrupt other people. And I just tried to fight her off until eventually I was too tired and too weak. And then she let me come up and I could see the, uh, the aide who worked at the public school was just kind of standing there. So I knew this wasn't an attack. I knew this was in response to what I did. And I kind of had that feeling of like this next school, school number one, it's not going to be good. Uh, if this is what happens at school number one, I'm, I'm really in for it. And he was four. I mean, maybe five, but <laughs> he was very young. Right, right, right. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, one of the, the issues here. Um, and something I hope changes at some point is that, you know, these techniques that are used. Um, well, let me say this. There are far better things we can and should be doing to help kids. Right. Uh, physically restraining a kid or putting a kid in isolation just don't make any sense. 
Um, and, and very often, you know, as this story illustrates, you know, it wasn't your behavior that led to this. It was the behavior of the adults. You know, um, you're four years old with, mm-hmm. you know, a just very, um, you know, a very young brain. You know, your brain development at that point is is not what the adult brain development is. Um, you know, it's about the adults and the adults' decisions. And, you know, school should be a place where every kid feels safe. And, and to be at a place where you should be able to feel safe the impact that that must have had on you every day. I mean, you know, I, I remember, and I, I think that you, Robert, had shared that you didn't run into a lot of school resistance, but I know a lot of kids that do. Uh, and my own son, in fact, you know, if you have a kid that's like, I don't want to go to school, um, be, be aware. There could be a, be a big yeah. problem there. But um, yeah, I mean, this it's, it's heartbreaking to think that a four-year-old would have been physically restrained over something like that. And, you know, the fact that we don't have any federal law around the use of restraint seclusion in schools yeah. blows my mind. Uh, I think it should absolutely, uh, there should be federal law. Right. Um, you know, we have state laws, but they're not very uh, strong and they're not well um, enforced. And, you know, the federal guidance that's out there says, you know, you should not use a physical restraint or put a kid in isolation unless it is a situation that involves a life-threatening situation you know yeah. uh the, the terminology is imminent serious physical harm and the federal guidance says you don't restrain or seclude unless the kid's in a situation where if you were not to take action it could result in the death of someone right. and someone refusing to give you a pair of dice is not a life-threatening situation mm-hmm. you should never put anybody into a physical hold over something like that but i mean clearly that's that's what they were doing and, yeah and- i think the issue with that in a lot of places is you know, the analogy I use is it's illegal to speed. Um, different states have different rules, but let's say 90 miles per hour, there's probably no state that'll let you drive that fast. Um, if every single time you sped, you got pulled over, there probably wouldn't be a lot of speeding. But the reality is most people probably do it 99% of the time on their way to and from work and never get caught. And the one time they do, they get the ticket. It's a lot like that in the schools. There's all of these guidelines and things with the state or federally that they need to follow, but it's not like there's supervisors watching at all times. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. At that first school, it seemed like all of the staff were kind of in on it. It was a really small school. It had a really tight knit collection of staff. Um, The the principal himself was one of the people that was restraining me. So it just got totally out of hand. You know, at one point I knocked over a snowman on the playground and they literally said, when we go inside, we're going to have a very long hold. And they peacefully walked me down the hill, which is like a 10 minute walk. And I calmly walked inside and then I was on the floor for 10 minutes. Like things like that go on and people just don't know about it. Right. And the hard part is he was so young, he couldn't really describe it. And remember, we picked this place because we were told smaller class sizes, you know, they'll help with transitions. It, it's a more individualized education plan. You know, the hold part was was just kind of like this extra thing. All right. If something really bad happens and he gets out of control, someone's going to come in and hug him and and he'll until he's OK. And so we didn't fixate on it, you know, at the time. And, and again, it, I, I mean, I take. We, we blew it. Trust me in the book. Right, I mean, right. I, I fall on the sword. I mean, it was, we should have been paying more attention and listening to him 
But he would come home. He was a trooper. He'd get on the bus every day. He never complained. He'd come home and, you know, he might describe. We would get this written, uh, like a, a journal entry, basically, from the mm -hmm. teacher. And, it, and they would use all the right terms. You know, when he would be held, it was, you know, he was out of control or he was, you know, he was in a, a, a situation where he was dangerous and, and we had to restrain him. You know, they wouldn't tell you how long it went on for or what it, what it looked like. You know, and then we would ask Ryan about it. And then when Ryan would describe it, you know, he, they tried to kill me. They tried to cover my mouth. They, you know, mm -hmm. I just assumed he was exaggerating. The only reason I knew he wasn't exaggerating because we were doing them when, occasionally at home. And when we do them at home, mm -hmm. I knew what I felt like when I was on top of him and what mm -hmm. I wanted. You know, when, mm -hmm. when he was bucking his head like this, mm -hmm. oh, how do I do? I got to put his head, I got to hold his head. And I'm like, what am I doing this for? I don't even know why I'm doing this to begin with. So it, I can imagine for the teachers, you know, I, I, to stereotype a little, I think just watching the teachers at a school, the men are, even, are the worst. I think the, the <laughs> female teachers somehow can keep their cool, I think, and sometimes, it's, and they were a little better at it, and Ryan could speak to this more than I could. The couple of male teachers at his school, it, they just, they wanted to win that wrestling match. I, mean, mm -hmm. I think they were way worse and, 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 also, and physically imposing, you know, and, and that's mm -hmm. where I, I, you know, how many times do you think you were restrained in that first school, Ryan? I'd say hundreds thousands i mean even yeah I guess. I, it probably once or twice every day for four years oh gosh it's insane yeah well i, I remember something and i don't remember if it was uh ryan or, or robert if it was you that shared it but about an administrator that that talked about like restraining five kids at a time or something like that i mean just yeah yeah, yeah. he bragged about it he, he we had a once a week thing where he would come and he would uh eat lunch with us and he was like, I held all six kids one time. I had two under this arm, two under yes. this arm, and all the other ones under my legs, and one in the middle. Like, I'm like, oh, my God. Like, why are you proud of this? This is messed mm -hmm. up. Mm -hmm. so, so four years. I mean, what was the progress looking like year after year? And, I mean, when did things begin to shift? So we started around this, the first two years. Went back. He was really little for the first couple of years. Right. And then third year, we start questioning you know, the use of the holds and we wanted to, to, to try to see them use, you know, different, you know, weighted blankets or, you know, give them some space. And, and, and you know, they would kind of yes us, but they never really would change by the, the beginning of the fourth year. I mean, I was, we were actively fighting to get out of there. The problem was he had now gone to a school that restrained him right. and he had a one-to-one -one aid. So then when they would give us the list of schools that were available to transfer it to, there was like four options, most of which were, were closer to Boston, which was farther from her house. It was a much you know, more advanced populace of kids. There were kids who had been kicked out of Boston public schools and, you know, and it had, you know, frankly, had really difficult lives and just looked, they just looked so much bigger than Ryan, right? It looked like this little tiny kid and we'd go to these schools and I'm like, how can you possibly go here? This, this feels like a prison. It feels like a school where they locked down 24 seven. There were all kinds of big security looking guys. And eventually his second school was a, a hybrid, I would say, of something like that. And ironically, it, it ended up being better because the kids, the kids were, because they had grown up in the system and were conditioned, they taught Ryan how to avoid restraints. You know, they would mm -hmm. say, listen, they're going to do this to you if you don't, you know, you know, just give in on some of these little things and don't get to that point. And I mm -hmm. think it was, it was an interesting perspective when you look back on it, but mm -hmm. it, it was, it was marginally better the second place, but it was, it was just only marginally better. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Ryan, one of the things that um, stuck with me in the, the parts of the book that I've had an opportunity to go through so far is your memory. Um, you know, thinking back, um, you know, 
I mean, for me, thinking back to, you know, times when I was much younger, it becomes harder and harder the older I get. So, you know, you don't have as much distance as I have between the the younger years, but you seem to have a lot of memory around those times. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what, what do you, what sticks out to you, you know, in terms of the time you spent at those first two schools and, um, you know, what, what are your memories as you look back on it? What sticks out? I mean, as I got older, um, in school number one, I think that the issue became that I was getting older, I was getting bigger. And I definitely I spent more time in the restraint, they could shut things down pretty quickly when I was like really young. Right. But when I started fighting back, and also the at this point, the trauma was starting to really take hold yep. of my mind more. Yep. So it was turning into these 30 minute, you know, fighting matches with me and the teacher. And then as soon as I fought back, then once I got old enough that I could like throw a decent punch, then they had the justification of like, well, since you got violent during the restraint, now you're in timeout for the rest of the day. Since you got violent when we were on top of you trying to hold you down. And and of course, you know, there's no logic to that. in fact, I mean, when they go hands on with you, you know, you don't, you're not controlling. I mean, even if you can punch, I mean, it's not like you're thoughtfully saying, you know, I'm going to punch yeah, them. Exactly. You know, you're responding out of, of stress and fear. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, exactly. Like I said, I would just totally black out, but yeah, then I spent a lot of time in timeout. So I, I didn't spend a lot of time in class and there wasn't a lot of learning. Um, our, uh, our babysitter at the time was uh, also a teacher or was in training to be a teacher. I don't remember that detail exactly, but she taught me how to read after school in our basement because mm-hmm. I was really behind on my reading. Mm-hmm. Around the time I moved schools at the second school, it was definitely different. Um, they really seemed like they were abiding by it. They weren't as deranged. They weren't using it as a punishment. It didn't feel like they were enjoying it as much. They never bragged about it. Um, and also the teachers weren't usually the ones who did it, which was the other difference. They had um, like their own staff who were like the situation handlers. I described them as they mm-hmm. would come into the room and then they would restrain you and then they would take you to the side room, which was um, it wasn't really a seclusion room because everybody was in there. It was almost like the holding cell. Yeah, I used it. to joke with kids. I'm like, what are yeah. you in for? You know, right, right. Um, but the problem was, had I gone there first, I probably would have been OK because I probably wouldn't have caused as many problems. But at this point, I was so damaged that whenever I sensed a problem coming, I would either start fighting with the teacher or um i would just run they had a huge Mm -hmm, campus mm -hmm. had a bunch of trees on it i would like climb up a tree and you know hide in it i would like try and hide Mm -hmm. in one of the buildings it would turn into this chase across campus so i had to undo all of that trauma and i think part of that was a little bit of therapy and a lot of it was like dad said the kids you know a lot of times i'd be in this room and it would be one of the kids or one of the teacher's aides who were generally young and mm-hmm. you know, weren't as invested in the method so much. We're like, okay, you know, let's go through the events. You know, what did this start over? It's like, oh, you know, I, um, I didn't want to uh, redo this math sheet. I was upset that I did it wrong. And they're like, okay, and now you're in this room for the rest of the day. Like, it doesn't have to be like this. So I started to internalize that a little bit more. Um, but that school it was honestly, there was some good times there. I feel like I made a lot of friends. I feel like a lot of the kids there were really good people. 
Um, and it was, it, it felt kind of like one of those uh, free range schools uh, initially, like they had a tree that you were just allowed to climb and kids would just yeah. climb like 20 feet up into it. And I was into parkour at the time. So I was teaching all the kids how to do things. I was teaching them how to do flips and stuff. And, you know, I tell people some of the things that went on at the school, they don't believe me. There was a time when all the staff were on this flight of stairs and we were running across the hallway. We were jumping over them and it felt like it was kind of encouraged almost like they, you know, that was just Ryan. He was doing his thing. So, so, so maybe there were people that valued you for who you were. Yeah. You it felt like I was into somebody that you weren't. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It felt like my individuality was valued a little bit more. And then, Around my last year there, it actually, they changed administrators. Like they had a really good, um, I don't know what his title was. I assume he was the principal. Um, He, I think his name was Dr. Small. um, And he was this guy who everybody loved. He like, you know, there was a student who needed a heart transplant and he like helped her get a heart. It was like, and then when he left and this other person came in, it like totally switched back. It got really Mm. rigid again. She was definitely Mm. afraid to stand out. It was, it was this whole Mm. shift. And I was really upset that it shifted because for a while it was nice. Just for mm-hmm. context now at home, obviously we, we've now know restraint is awful. We, we stopped and we were advocating for schools not to do it. Mm-hmm. We were sort of forced into the second school because we didn't have a choice, but we were, we were pretty sure that they restrained much, much less at that school. It happened maybe once every once a month at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, also just in terms of the book, you know, we started skiing at this point. And the only reason I'm going to introduce skiing is because I was taking Ryan on weekends to parts of new england and we started traveling around the country i start seeing a much different kid than everybody else when he was away from all that and it was just the two of us we would go through airports and hotels and we would wait in lift lines and we would ski all day long and we'd go back to hotels and have dinners and i would see this kid i'm saying he's doing all of these things yet he can't go to the water fountain without somebody you know with him or go to the bathroom on his own Mm -hmm. at this point he was on maybe three medicines two Mm -hmm. antipsychotics and a mood stabilizer and I'm now I'm starting to question the doctors in addition to questioning the educators. So that so that just just to kind of get you to that part of the story, there was two parallel tracks we call it on the book. There was the skiing version of Ryan and there was the school mm-hmm, version mm-hmm, of Ryan. Mm-hmm. Still radically different, but he wasn't, you know, the damage of the restraints I think was was more in that first school. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you know, it's funny. I, I I was getting ready to to head where you're heading and I just want to ask one kind of follow-up question um in terms of that that first school. And, and then I want to get into the transition because, you know, as I think about some of the things you shared in the book, uh, a lot of it related, you know, I could relate to. Um, there were a lot of places where we would go when my son was young that he was not able to meet the expectations in those places. And, and I was the dad of the child that was not successful in places that, you know, even when we we're trying to do the right thing, whether it was a party or, a, you know, a, a, a scouting event or something else, um, you know, it, it was often that those expectations were really tough on my son. And, uh, you know, it took me a while to kind of learn, uh, you know, how to better support him. And also, you know, um, you know, really reframing some of my own expectations um, in terms of, you know, how to how to help him be successful. I never was one much for diagnoses. Um, really what mattered to me is like, like, like you, Ryan, my son, um, you know, while when he was young, I mean, we knew that we knew that he was different than, than other kids, but we also saw these special um, strengths and abilities. And, you know, um, you know, I think about the vocabulary. I mean, when, when my son, 
you know, really got uh, speaking. He had a, a really extensive vocabulary and he would get really focused on certain things. And, uh, you know, it's just there were there were things that, you know, were different, but that were really strengths that nobody else was seeing at the time. And then eventually you see them through mm-hmm. something like what you're talking about. But I have one final question on kind of the early years of school. And then I want to really want to transition on, you know, kind of just that how you begun to see, you know see a different child. Uh, we work with somebody named Dr. Sorochenker, who I, I think really the world of. Uh, he wrote a couple books about, um, you know, better supporting kids, a book called Self-Reg. But uh, Stuart says something really meaningful in that when you see a child differently, you see a different child. And in, in your case, being began to be the place where you saw Ryan differently and saw a different person. So we'll get there in one second. But Ryan, I have kind of one last question for you in terms of kind of thinking back to those early years where this was happening a lot to you. Why do you think that the staff felt that that was necessary? I mean, why do you think that they were doing it? Uh, it was really, it, it felt like a methodology. Right. It, it felt like at the first school, it was ingrained in what they do. Mm-hmm. You know, the, there's, places and there's groups and there's people who like form around a belief that something is the way. And that first school was definitely, this is the way there gotcha. is no other way than this. Yeah. And, and, and that's a great way to put it. Cause I mean, we often talk about how, you know, you can look at schools that work really with the same kids. I mean, you know, I mean, they, they may have different names, but they're, they're the same kids. And, and school one is really punitive and, and does a lot of things like restraint seclusion school two doesn't it's not the kids that are different. It's the adults. It's the mindset of the adults. Right. Yeah. Cause that's what I was going to say is school number two. It felt like a lot of people were just kind of doing their jobs. Mm-hmm. You know, right. it's, right. it's tough. They, they got handed a lot of kids who had a lot of damage. Um, but it didn't feel like restraints were a part of the ideology. It was more a byproduct of just people doing what they had to do, you know? Right. 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 So one last question on that. Um, if you were able to say something to some of those people that had done this to you, that had traumatized you as a young child, I mean, what would be your message for them today? That That is a hard question to answer. Um, the first answer that came to my mind was look at me now. Because <laughs> um, uh, I, I just want to shine on them a little bit. Um, but... and, and you know what? That, that's a good answer because... Yeah. I, you know, I, I think I, I think I read um, and I've heard this with other kids, too. Like you're you're six years old and being told you're going to end up in jail. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, these terrible things that people think sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Look at me now. Thanks for making me a published author. All the things go down the list. But honestly, I mean, if I could come up with a more thought out answer, I guess I would just say, like, think about what you're doing. Right. Just like, look at this is a human kid just think about how this is going to affect their brain, their value of themselves, their place in the world growing up. Just like get it through your head. Cause I got lucky that I'm, that I made it this far. Yeah. Yeah. That's, Some that's people great. are going to carry that with them and it's going to destroy them forever. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about, you know, um, where, where you were beginning to take us, Robert, in terms of um, you began suddenly to have experiences with Ryan where you 
we're going skiing. And, and I remember reading that like initially you were like, this probably isn't going to work. And you know, you, you only planned a couple uh, steps ahead because you were like, your expectations weren't high that this, and somehow this turned into something magical. So walk us through that. Um, You know, how did that begin? And uh, you know, tell us how it got you suddenly kind of seeing Ryan differently and and what that's led to. Yeah. So, I mean, when we, decided to stop restraining we needed you needed an out right when things you know ryan had a sister that was 16 months younger they didn't fight too much but if, if, if they did get in it and they were starting to get on each other's nerves i learned that distraction was the only way and then oftentimes that meant taking him from the situation and so usually i'd throw him in the car and we'd go to home depot and walk around home depot for an hour and i'd get stuck buying some giant wrench that i could never use if because i had no idea how to use it or some piece of equipment that i didn't know what to do with and just to you know to keep them happy and and so you know he got sort of tired of that and we we tried different sports we tried different athletic stuff he loved the park he loved being outside one we used to go to this uh soccer indoor soccer place for birthday parties and i probably had some you know humiliating defeats there at every birthday party we ever went to but it was right near this ski little ski hill that, that's that's a couple of you know towns over from us and i must have just filed it away i, I hadn't skied since i was a little kid and i didn't ski that much even then um, it had been 25 years. And one day during Christmas break, when he was home for a week and my daughter was home for a week and we had nothing to do, it was winter in New England and, and they were getting into it. I just threw him in the car. I put a bike helmet on him and gloves and a coat. And we drove to the ski hill and I told him we were going skiing. And, and I, you know, what made me do it? I have no idea. It, maybe it was divine intervention. I don't know. But we <laughs> drive there and we go through the rental. Ryan couldn't wait for anything. He was terrible at waiting. He, he just had you know no ability to, to modulate that. So just the rental process, if you've ever skied. I know. I, I, I can absolutely. It takes really, forever. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, awful. Yeah. Right? Sure, the, sure. It's measuring your feet and your weight and, and you know the, the height and everything. And so we finally, we, we stumble out onto the little slope. And there's a magic carpet is like the thing at the airport that moves you. But it's, mm-hmm. it's on a little hill and it takes you up. And we we shot onto that thing. And um, he had him, I had him between my legs. And. It wasn't until I got to the top that I said, I haven't told him anything about skiing. I don't even remember like what to tell him, but here we are standing on this thing. And I started to talk to him and he looked at me and he nodded and he, I could tell he wasn't listening. And he just turned and he shot straight down the hill and he, and he made this turn back toward the, where the, the lift began. And I'm like, how the hell did he do that? He doesn't even know what he's doing. I don't even know how to do that. And I've done this before. And so I stumbled down and we got back in the line and, and I don't know if they just, he, something clicked that day. We, we, we lasted a couple hours and I'll have Brian tell his version, but we lasted a couple hours there. And I remember driving home and thinking, you know, that wasn't terrible. That, that was, you know, that's how, where the bar had been set in our, in our house was, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. terrible and not terrible. And it wasn't terrible. And it was actually kind of fun as we went mm-hmm. back the next day and mm-hmm. it just it became our thing. So, so Ryan, tell me a bit about your early memories of, of some of those trips. I mean, I know at some point you, you began to work with a coach and, you know, probably before you uh, would have been reasonably ready, we're going down what black diamond trails and <laughs> things like that. But tell me a little bit about your, your recollection from early on when, you know, you first were introduced to skiing and, and um, you know, kind of where things went from there. It clicked with me pretty instantly, uh, physically and mentally. Like we had a whole graveyard of sports that I had tried in the garage that just, I just didn't take to them. Mm -hmm. Uh, I liked the individuality of skiing. I never was a big like team sports competition kind of guy. Like I, I didn't like the feeling of losing because it made me feel like a loser. You know, Mm -hmm. even if you played your best, if the other team beat you, it just wasn't good enough. 
uh, skiing, you know, your best is always your own measure of it. And it doesn't even need to be a performative thing. It can just be fun. Um, but, uh, yeah, uh, I don't remember him trying to explain to me anything. I don't remember the, the rental process even being that bad. I know the boots were uncomfortable, but I just kind of dealt with it. And I just went down the hill because that was my understanding of skiing was it was a way to get down a snowy hill. Yeah. And I wanted to go back into the line and I let my edges take me there. And that was fun. So we just did it again and again and again. Uh, eventually we got a lesson. Um, we got an instructor um, and I was already doing the magic carpet. So we skipped that step in the lesson. And dad had gone into the lodge, right? At that point. Uh, yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. I'm totally unsure how things yeah. were going, but yeah. it's hoping for the best, right? Yeah. I had yeah. to the bathroom, I think. I was finally okay. Okay. <laughs> so yeah. Um, she's like, okay, well, if you're going to ski, you need to learn how to turn. I'm like, okay. And she showed me how to turn and I picked it up pretty quickly. So then I was like, can we ride the lift? So we go up the lift and she takes me down the blue square. And you know, if you don't know much about skiing, cause green circle, blue square, black diamond, double black, triple black now at big sky and smugglers notch and nowhere else in the world. Um, so we go down the blue, which is like 200 feet, but compared to the magic carpet, which is 40 feet, it's a lot bigger and there's other people and stuff. And we do big S turns across the whole thing. And I haven't fallen yet. We do that like four times. Then I go over to, uh, the black diamond and he hadn't even explained to me the ratings yet. I didn't know what it went or what it meant. Yeah. I just knew that we went the other way the first time and we haven't been this way. So yeah. I asked, Hey, can we do it? And my instructor was like, yeah, let's do it. So this one was steeper and I kicked a ski off and it kind of felt like this grand adventure getting the ski back on. And it was just like an Epic on this little mm -hmm. hill. It was about, the most extreme thing you could feel on a hill that big. Hmm. And when I skied down the mountain, I didn't really think anything of it. It just was what it was to me. There was a whole line of instructors. And there was this lady who I now know as the ski school director who was standing there and they're all looking at me like, what, you know? Mm -hmm. And she actually kneeled down to me and she's like, did you do that on your first day? I'm like, yeah. And she's like, nice job. Yeah. And, I didn't get it that that was unusual. I thought that that was a normal ski progression. When I became an instructor and I had kids for six weeks who were still on the magic carpet, then I realized that I had something natural for skiing that was really unusual. Now, how old were you at this time that you, that, that story, how old were Seven. you? About? Seven. Wow. Wow. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I don't remember getting off the bunny slope, but that's a whole nother yeah, story. But that's, that's where I assumed he was going to spend the day. I mean, that's yeah. why I went into the bathroom. I'm like, all right, I don't want to watch this. It's going to be boring. And then when I came back out and they were gone, I'm like, well, maybe there's another area that they take them to. I never thought right, in my wildest right. dreams they would ride the lift and come back down. I mean, yeah. nobody does that. So, so you know, from here, you, you guys begin to go on more of these excursions. You eventually, you know, buy your own gear so you're not wearing the uh, the terrible boots from. <laughs> mm -hmm. So tell me what happens then. I mean, you know, and, and really, you know, one of the things I want to hear from uh, both of you is, you know, I mean, at one point, this is probably a really welcome diversion. So, you know, things have been tough. Things have been hard. But, you know, I'm sure that, you know, I mean, unfortunately, Ryan, I'm sure that based on what you were going through, 
you didn't feel good about yourself. I mean, you know, a lot mm -hmm. of times you were being, you know, restrained, you were being corrected, you know, you, you were probably not feeling really successful, but suddenly there's this thing that, you know, you're really successful, you know, at. Um, so I'd love to hear even some about, you know, how this began to be a bit of a healing journey for you as well. Mm -hmm. You know, I always tell people that the thing that young people in this world need the most right now is a skill that they can build that they'll constantly see little bits of improvement every day at. And if not every day, every week, just something that they can build and pro progress at and come back to that's, you know, physical or mental, but is individual mm -hmm. because that can be really healing. Um, by all means, I shouldn't feel as confident as I do walk as tall as I do. I shouldn't have the self-efficacy that I do. Um, and that comes from skiing, from climbing, from these sports yeah. where you start to internalize the progress um, and realize like, oh, this thing that's a little bit unusual and is challenging. I put in the work and made that happen. You, mm -hmm. you start to apply that attitude to other aspects of your life. So mm -hmm. I think that's how skiing can be healing. It was for me and how it was for everybody. Mm -hmm. But really before I even thought that deep about it. It was just a fun thing that I got to have in a life that was otherwise pretty negative and empty for me. Mm -hmm. You know, all of a sudden I could get through the week because I knew on Saturday we were going to go skiing and it was a cool little father son adventure. We went to watch and watch was maybe the worst thing that it had happened to us. Um, they'd had hour long lift lines and it was like icy moguls. And I was like, you know, falling all over the place. People were skiing around me, above me, below me. I was just like, I don't like this mountain. Um, and then he started telling me about the mountains in New Hampshire. And if you want to know how little we knew, I'm like, how tall are they? He's like, I think they're 10,000 feet. <laughs> we had no idea. Uh, but I was like, I want to ski in New Hampshire this weekend. So we ended up going to Loon. And Loon became our home mountain. And this is the part of the story where I'm so grateful we didn't die. Uh, we had no idea what we were doing. We were like skiing in the woods and ending up in creek beds and having a hike out. We were trying to take snowmobile roads between the mountain and, you know, uh, getting lost. Um, we were separating, you know, Neshoba Valley, if you ski to the bottom, it's the parking lot. You're going to find each other at Loon. You can ski to different lifts and different base areas. And, you know, it was really, there were, uh, there was some potential for things to go wrong, but things didn't go wrong. And when they did, it was just part of the adventure. So we just had fun. And the natural progression of it was that um, we would just keep going bigger places. So we went mm -hmm. to snow. Mm -hmm. I skied my first double black diamond, despite his resistance to that. <laughs> Uh, eventually we went out west yeah, yeah and um i actually um i dropped a cliff for the first time which is a thing that you see on youtube and see in ski movies and is like a pretty usual thing you know they the cliff had multiple tracks leading to the edge of it and it's not very big it's only like 20 feet you know it's not like el cap but then i was coming back to school number one and telling them about this and they were trying to use it as an excuse that I wasn't safe, that like my risk taking in skiing wasn't healthy. And it was actually a sign that I like wanted to die. And that's not the case with skiing at all. Skiing 
harder terrain is a way to feel alive. It's mm-hmm. about personal growth. It's not about pushing an edge. Yeah, and it's about being an individual, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I think so often so many of the issues that root back to what goes wrong in school for kids is that, you know, individualism, you know, schools are like bringing people together and wanting to make everybody the same, wanting everybody to be compliant, right? I mean, mm-hmm. th- this whole focus on compliance, I think, is is not only not productive for a lot of kids, it's dangerous for some kids because in the name of compliance, you know, kids are restrained, they're secluded, they're you know, subjected to corporal punishment because they didn't comply. And, and of course, that has an effect us on, on us as adults as well, right? Uh, mm-hmm. I, I'm the kind of guy now that questions things. And, uh, you know, even if I go to my doctor and my doctor says, okay, here's X, Y, Z, I'm like, well, what about this? Do you think we should tell? Because that's mm-hmm. how I am. My brain thinks like, you know, I, I should question things. That's not always mm-hmm. welcome, uh, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, I think it's really important because if we become compliant adults, we end up doing things that, we've been told to do that again, you know, Robert, like sharing your story, it's like these experts told us this is what we should do, you know? And, and I think there's some, some lesson there for sure. Um, But, you know, I think just the, the meeting individuals needs and differences, um, you know, Ryan, you've got amazing, um, you know, talent and capabilities yet in the system that was not designed to appreciate that, you know, it was a really tough experience. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Robert, I've got to think that there was a time that, well, hold on. I got one more question for you, Ryan. And I'm sorry, I'm going to, oh, I'm going to pause here and say anybody that's watching, because I, I'm so excited about this conversation and I have lots to ask you, but, uh, I want to be fair here that if you're watching live and you've got a question or comment, please put it in the chat now. And I'm going to try to get to a couple of questions here in just a few minutes. Um, but I, I wanted to ask, um, so suddenly this time you're spending together, that's really positive time, um, I mean, I'm going to guess that that had some impact kind of secondarily in terms of like this relationship was probably growing between the two of you. And, and you know, we often say that, you know, the, the best way to, to heal from trauma or adversity is like that one relationship sometimes can really make a difference. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you think, Ryan? I mean, did you feel like that relationship between you and your dad was was growing during this time as well? And was that helping? You oh, during- of course. Yeah. I mean, it was our thing. That's, you know, like I said before, it was, it was the father son activity. And I think it was cool because it wasn't like a lot of activities where, you know, the dad did it growing up and wants to try and make you like it. And you aren't. That would have been baseball, right, Robert? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And I I don't even remember him trying to get me to do baseball. So I, uh, (laughs) I don't want to shade baseball. But um, it was cool because we were figuring it out together. So it was like a team adventure thing. Uh, And we had a lot of good talks on the chairlift and in the car ride up. And, you know, um, we we talked about the trail maps and, you know, thought of fun places we hadn't been yet that we should go. So it was a great period of growth for our relationship. I'm I'm sure. And, you know, as I look at the title, you know, how skiing saved my son's life, you know, I'm just thinking to myself, it's like, more than skiing it was that connection too yeah, and, and yeah. what you guys were doing yeah. um yeah that, that's really great so he was quickly put in a position he was much better than me i mean so right. he you know he was the I, one, I, I can relate to that I, you know, I, he was I, the I, one I, coaching me and and he was making decisions as to where we should go you know and again that parallel tracks concept here's a kid who isn't allowed to do anything when he's in right. school and now right. he's out we're in these mountains and you know there, it's not life or death but you could end up in a bad place and I'm relying on this nine, 10 year old kid to get us out of jams all the time. So I think it was a real confidence builder for him. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and certainly the, I think the re- growth of the relationship there was probably really meaningful. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I'm sure there was a time that you were kind of reflecting on things, you know, early on and thinking, you know, I mean, right now here's Ryan in college, not far from the end, uh, this, this successful, uh, you know, athlete and, and doing these amazing things. And I want to hit on some of those amazing places you've been. Um, but I'm sure there was a time where, you know, just getting through the, the, the week or getting through the day was really difficult. Yeah. I'm sure you're really proud now of, of, all that that uh, you know, Ryan's accomplished. Um, and tell me a little bit. No, I, I think that the light bulb moment was, you know, Ryan was difficult. Then Ryan was damaged, and then it, at home and in school, whenever anything went wrong, it just went it went so wrong because of the adults pouncing, right? Yep, yep. And, and not just restraint, but just even mentally, just they, you know, they're in the room. And somehow we'd get out of the world, we'd get out into the mountains, and we'd drive and we'd fly places. And like you know, like Ryan said, things went wrong all the time it just became part of the adventure because yeah. the temperature was just, you know, we just relaxed and, and we, we, I saw a resiliency in him that nobody else thought was there. Doctors didn't think was there. That's why he needed all these medicines. Schools didn't think he was there. That's why he needs these special programs. And it was, you know, he, maybe he doesn't need any of this. Maybe we were wrong from the start. We got down this path that we never should have gone down. And now I got to find a way to get him out. And once I had a light bulb clicked, I started to really fight and get him back to public school. We found a therapist that took him off all his medication. And, and you know, it's, it, but that couldn't have happened without Ryan. Ryan couldn't, mm-hmm. Ryan needed to, you know, both heal and advance at the same time. And that's a mm-hmm. lot to ask a kid because socially all this is going on in social media and he's, a, he's just a kid and he's being asked to, to heal from trauma and you know, take on this, you know, this new role as a, as a typical kid. And, and, and if, if he failed at any moment, he was right back to where he was before. So <laughs> I am incredibly proud of, you know, no matter what he's become, he's already proven everybody wrong. And I say this in the book, including me. So, I mean, that's, that's, you know, that's, that's a pretty great thing for a 21 year old and, and he's not done yet. So yeah, yeah. I, I, I was thinking the same. So, um, right. Tell me some of the things that you're proudest of in terms of, you know, uh, and related to anything you want to relate it to, whether it be your skiing or whether it be your, your journey, what, what are you really proud of the things that you've, uh, kind of been through and the things you've accomplished? Well, I guess for starters, um, hanging on as long as I did, um, I guess I, at any point had I just given up and just adopted victimhood as, as a mentality, I wouldn't have made it this far. Uh, getting back to public school and thriving like I didn't just go there and you know say I did it and you know was the kid who didn't get involved in any activities I, I I got back there and I proved most importantly to myself that I could be in the normal world mm-hmm. without all of this stuff going on and I could thrive because when I was still in those schools even as I was getting more involved in activities I always, I always felt like an outsider and I always felt like if I got to college or somewhere, I wouldn't be able to be like everybody else. Uh, and of course, just proud of the mountain progress. You know, I've skied uh, some of the hardest in mountains runs. I've gone on expeditions, um, climbed, you know, and skied on volcanoes, done multi-day traverses where you're sleeping on rock walls and, um, you know, got into the guiding world, kind of got my foot in the door with, um, with ice axe expeditions and have gotten a tail guide in Antarctica, in the Arctic. Um, that's Svalbard. Um, if, uh, you need to pronounce that one, um, I'll leave it to you. <laughs> become a climber and I've gotten to a really 
strong level of climbing too, you know, playing on five twelves, which is something that, you know, you have to train your mind, your body, your breath work, everything in you to be able to climb. And I've gotten mm-hmm. a few of those, um, I would say those are some of the things that I'm most proud of. Mm-hmm. And of course, as your dad pointed out a minute ago, you know, you're just getting started here. And there's a couple of things I want to hit kind of like for, for future, you know, for future extreme Ryan, like where you're headed. And, and first, as we talked, as we were getting ready to come on air here, you know, I was just, you know, saying how much I appreciated the fact that you both had taken the time to, to write this book. And, and part of this book is really about promoting change. So uh, tell me, I mean, do you have any, um, any goals in terms of trying to impact change? I mean, that's obviously what this book is about. Um, is that still something that's kind of highly on your list in terms of, you know, trying to prevent others going through the kinds of things that you went through? I think right now, um, number one is just the awareness. Right. It's just how many eyes and ears can we get this book to, to let people in the world know this is what's happening. Mm-hmm. And I think right now, we've validated a lot of people's journeys I've had some adults come to me and say, Oh, my kid is going through this and they're, you know, mm-hmm. struggling with X, Y, and Z and had some adults say like, Oh, this is how I grew up and I never had the words to put it this way. Mm-hmm. That has been a cool part of the journey, but uh, I think getting it to the ordinary person and waking them up mm-hmm. and adding this to the list of areas that need to be changed mm-hmm. right now, we have, this is an era of like rapid progress. You know, we're, we're trying to end racism and homophobia and all of, you know, you know, shrink and a lot of things that need to be ended. <laughs> and it's, it's just, it's not on anybody's list to reform schools for special needs kids, but it fits the era right mm-hmm. now. We're trying to shatter anything that hinders people who are different and disadvantaged. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. Well, I, 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 good on list. Yeah, I mean, I can assure you it's on our list here. And, you mm-hmm. know, we've got, I mean, uh, a great um, community of people, probably over over 20 some thousand people that are also, I think, very dedicated to those kinds of mm-hmm. changes as well. There's a lot of work to be done. But, you know, we're, we're with you with that. Sure. How about you, Robert? What are your your um you know, kind of hopes or next step in terms? Yeah, of- it's, it's interesting. In a way, it's counterintuitive. I think we're the oddest poster you know, boys or Ryan is for this cause, because what we saw along the way were a lot of the kids that were in foster care or had, had led right, really right. difficult lives and ended up in these schools really through no fault of their own were the ones who were, were the most, you know, abused by the system. And, you know, here, but here we are, we were in the suburbs, two lawyers, you know, and we still put a kid in this in this position. You know, if, if it could happen to us, it could happen to anyone because mm-hmm. we just listened when we should know. We listened mm-hmm. to doctors and, you know, Massachusetts has the best hospitals in the world. And we would meet with people and they would have, a, you know, a lot of impressive degrees behind their desk when you'd look behind, you know. But mm-hmm. that doesn't mean they know your kid better than you know your kid. Absolutely. And that's one thing I learned. And, and if we, if anything, if we can just get that messaging out. And then really drill down on the details because I don't. I don't think pe- when I tell the story, people the first reaction is always, "Well, that doesn't go on anymore, right? They don't restrain kids anymore in schools." And I say, yeah, they, "They don't do, do that in our state. They don't do that in our area." Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They have no idea. And I tell, I said, "You would not believe what goes on in these places." Right. And 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 will go on unless it's changed. And I, you know, your organization is is. You know, it, it, you're, you know, people owe such a debt of gratitude that you're out there fighting every day. And, and all these people that are on this, you know, that are it's amazing to me 
how many people it's impacted. But, you know, it's, it seems to be in every state. And even the woman from Canada who said it goes on in Canada. It's, it's crazy in this day and age that it does. But, you know, here we are. So and hopefully our, you know, our, our story, you know, we'll, we'll put a face to it and we'll put some context around it and, and we'll make people just sort of take a second look. And if that happens, I think once, you know, sunlight's the best disinfectant. Once you do that, there's no way that this system survives. I'm sorry. It just yeah, can't. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, you know, I, I certainly hope that that is, that is true. And we want to do anything we can to shine light on this. And, uh, you know, I'm looking forward to seeing more. Let me get to a couple of the comments that we have here, just because I've been uh, a little selfishly just in, absorbed in the conversation. And I apologize. Uh, Darcy said they hurt me more than an, uh, I hurt them. My eight-year-old granddaughter after repeated uh, fight, flight, and restraints uh, and isolation. Um, let's see. Uh, Angie says, why don't we call this what it really is? It's abuse. Abuse targeting children with disabilities, children um, of minorities, children of lower income levels. Um, let's see. Uh, <clears throat> I'm just kind of looking through these here. Uh, this from Jessica. Uh, this breaks my heart for you, Ryan, uh, and for my son, who has also gone through this. Uh, I've apologized so many times because I didn't know uh, and I wasn't taught better, uh, but uh, better, less traumatizing ways to help him. And, you know, again, you know, I, I'm a firm believer of the idea that when we know better, we do better. And, you know, I'm not interested in, in judging anybody on their journey. But, you know, once we're able to get people better ways of doing things, then I think we have an obligation to to do better. Uh, Angie said, I'm sorry, sorry, this happened to you, Ryan. Uh, but I'm really happy that you and your parents have triumphed over this. Yep. And let's see what else we have here. Uh, Rita says, it's a privilege to hear your story. Uh, thank you for sharing it. Uh, Kara said, thank you, Ryan, for sharing your story. My son has uh, not yet recovered from restraint, but we're working on it. And it really can. I mean, this is really long-term impact and, and, you know, you're, you're doing fantastic, but you know, these things don't just go away, you know, um, but you know, you're, you're doing fantastic. Uh, excited to read your book. Uh, another one here. I can't wait to read uh, the book. Uh, thank you, Ryan and Robert for sharing your story. Uh, another thank you for sharing your story. Uh, each parent, teacher, or person that works with kids should read this. Uh, nice comment here for, for the dads. Uh, and, 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 you know, I've got to agree, uh, Robert, um, you know, uh, I think that there was so much more to, than skiing to all of this. Um, and uh, that may have been the thing that, you know, brought this together and, and how amazing. I mean, you know, sometimes you don't want to know why the universe works the way it does. But, um, you know, it's nice to know in Maryland, non-public schools, they do not restrain and seclude. Well, um, that's not exactly true, unfortunately. Oh, it um, says they do. Oh, they do. Okay, I'm sorry. I, I, I read that wrong. Thank you, Ryan. My, my, my eyes got ahead of me here. Uh, yeah, in fact, um, you know, we passed legislation in Maryland recently to try to limit the use of um, seclusion. Uh, yes, best to listen to uh, disabled self-advocates, trust your kid, believe in them. Um, so a lot of a lot of people kind of weighing in here. Uh, Plainsville, Illinois schools definitely need to help uh, to stop seclusion and restraint. Um, and again, you know, thank you for, for speaking out, uh, and lots of thank you here's, here's for both of you. Um, this has been, you know, a really, um, fantastic, you know, time spent with both of you. Uh, and I so appreciate, you know, what you've done. And, uh, you know, like, as I said, I'm, I'm still working through the book, but I, I've made 
good progress here. And certainly we want to encourage people. Um, we'll put the link again in the chat uh, to get a copy of the book and, and to read it. And I think you sharing your story like this, you know, again, let's let's hope that this gets more light on things. Uh, and I love that your story is also being shared kind of in, in two different pathways, uh, both kind of in the skiing world and also in, in kind of the education and, and discipline world. Uh, and hopefully that'll get more eyes on this story than might otherwise see it. Um, but this work is so important. And I guess the, the thing I want to kind of leave with here, um, Ryan, I'm going to ask you both a question, but um, in terms of what's next for you. So we, we talked about what's next from an advocacy standpoint, but like what's next for you in life? What, what are some of the goals that you have now? And uh, you know, kind of what, you know, you're getting ready to graduate here soon. Uh, what do you see happening for you, you know, kind of in the future? Well, start guiding full time after I get out of here. Um, hopefully this book continues to have opportunities for me to grow as a writer too and help make that platform part of what I do. Um, obviously in the mountains, uh, I'd love to continue getting stronger and climbing, doing longer, harder routes, uh, start doing multi-day stuff like the walls in Yosemite, do bigger ski expeditions, go to places like the Arctic uh, and, you know, like the Pyrenees, some of these far out mountain ranges that aren't getting skied in a lot uh, and start pushing first descents, start pushing self-supported expeditions into these places that, you know, so few people in the world get to see and bring back content. So people around here who uh, might not be out there can enjoy it. That's great. That's great. Well, I, you know, please share with me as you're producing content. Would love to share it and highlight kind of your journey as it continues. Uh, I really appreciate you being here today. Robert, how about you? You know, kind of what do you see? Um, what do you see coming up next? And, um, you know, how can we continue to kind of collaborate together and hopefully bring about some change? I mean, certainly on this issue. I mean, we, we're there if you need us. It, it's, it's, you know, Massachusetts is probably got a one of the uh, just from the group i've met the, the locally they seem pretty you know you know advanced and they're they're fighting this in the right way but it's it's still it's still an uphill battle in any state and i think it's 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 they're gonna need you need some you know anecdotal stories like ours i think and that's that's where we can help you know for me going forward you know i see a, i see a generation of kids that i worry about I, I, it's it's not just the kids that that have disabilities but you know even the neurotypical kids look at statistically, they're all sad. They're all, you know, they're all depressed that, you know, COVID didn't help. But beyond that, the phone and social media is just a, it just damages them on a daily basis. What I watched happen with Ryan is that they have a passion. If they're outside, if they're doing something, they're challenging themselves, you know, it just, it changes the way they look at life. And so I, I haven't quite figured it out yet. I don't know how I drag a bunch of kids to a ski hill, but you know, maybe that's it. Maybe it's a, it's an inner city program where you get kids outside their comfort zone for a day. They try something new, they explore, experience something that they never would. And and we've had the we've had the you know the privilege and the, the chance to do that with some kids from my daughter's school and and kids that you never thought would become skiers and they they take it and they like it and it's, you know it's an expensive sport. It's hard. It, it requires a lot of travel, but you know anything like that where they're just forced to do something that isn't sitting in a room staring at that, you know, that the phone. And, uh, yeah, I'm no, no, no it's a great idea. You know, I remember when my son was having some challenges early on and it was just like, school was not a good fit for him. And, and it wasn't, it wasn't, he was wrong for school. School was wrong for him. And I remember very early on thinking like, my son needed like some kind of adventure school, right? Some place where he could be outside and be doing things with his hands and experiencing things. And, you know, to put a, a, a five or six year old in a classroom, 
uh, and expect that they're just going to sit there and absorb information and comply with every we're, we're missing the mark. And, you know, there, there's people that have um, shown there are better ways. So maybe, maybe one day Ryan can get a, a, a good corporate sponsorship and some money can go into, you know, coming up with a, a program of some kind that, um, you know, can help serve kids that aren't being served well in other places. So uh, lots of things to look forward to. Uh, it's been great to have you both here. I'm so glad to have had the opportunity to meet you both. Uh, and again, you know, encourage people, get yourself a copy of the book, uh, read it, uh, share your thoughts with us and uh, uh, you know, we'll look forward to uh, keeping in touch with you in the future. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. Appreciate it. Absolutely. And well, thanks thank everybody you. that joined. Appreciate it. Yep. And thank you, Ryan. Uh, I'm going to let the audience here go. If you guys want to hold on for one second here. Sounds good. Thanks. All right. Bye-bye. Bye everybody.